0: Beloved, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. Your Bible should flop right open to Romans chapter 5. We're in our uh, 44th uh, week in the book of Romans as we uh, walk together uh, through this uh, veritable uh, catechism of the early church in uh, clearly communicating the gospel of Jesus Christ to uh, the nascent church in in Rome. Uh, We'll look this morning... uh, Uh, At verses 12 through 21, Uh, this is, I think, our fourth sermon on this section, and uh, we'll continue to unpack the riches of what God has to teach us here. Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 12. Please stand with me for the reading of God's holy, inspired, inerrant, uh, efficacious, and authoritative word. Romans 5, and beginning in verse 12. Therefore... Grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Thus far, the reading of God's Word. Let us pray. Our Father, as we once again come to this marvelous section of Your Word, this Mount Everest of the Bible, we pray, O God, that You would teach us that you would disciple us, that you would show us, Lord, where our understanding of the gospel has been wrong, where perhaps we have been trusting in ourselves or in our own righteousness or in anything that we have done. We pray that even today would be a day of strengthening our understanding of and commitment to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, show us Christ in this text, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. may may be seated. people are so concerned in our day rightly so about the state of our culture about the spiraling downwards you can make a statement like this well things have always been bad yes that is that is true but as it concerns our own culture i think it's safe to say that it has never been this bad if you've seen the headlines if you've heard the commentary if you know what's going on in the world today, you know that there is a full-fledged tsunami of a moral revolution that's taking place all around us. The sexual revolution, the social justice CRT revolution, a revolution that finds its roots in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 and following. Man exchanging the creator for the creature. Man exchanging the truth of God for lies. Man exchanging natural relations for what? The unnatural. It's what we see happening in the world today. And people are concerned because it is like a tsunami. It's coming to us through the education systems and institutions. It's coming to us through the entertainment world, through Hollywood. It's coming to us through the sports world. It seems that every uh, power structure, it's coming to us through the social media world and the news media and and on and on we could go. Every major, powerful, world-shaping institution is not just wanting us to be open-minded about it, but is coming with a strong hand to, to change our minds, Christians' minds, and the minds of our children. And rightly so, we should be sort of bowed up. You know, I, I played center forward for many years, and, and if there was a, a defender who walked up to me and put his cleat in the back of my calf in the first minute of the game, uh, I knew that I needed to sharpen my elbows a little bit in the most loving Christian way. You know when you need to protect your, your family. and You know when, when these things are being pushed on us and there's an aggressiveness about it, which we've never seen before. But the, the response to all of this, of the church, the protection that we have, it's not in being the greatest apologists in the world, It's not in knowing philosophical categories better and better. It's not in being able to examine the culture in a way that is sophisticated. No, the answer to everything that's taking place in the world is the same as it has always been. The answer is the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That is the answer. If we look at Paul in Rome or Paul in Corinth or the apostles ministering in Asia Minor, they lived in a world that was overwhelmed with sexual immorality. They lived in a world where there were so many idols that they had idols that were even unnamed just to make sure they were covering their bases. They lived in a world where prostitution and and pornography and, 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 and uh, pedophilia and all of these things were, were normalized in the culture. Where when you'd walk out of your house, there would be idols everywhere. And yet, what does Paul come with? Does he come with a message about how to, how to transform the culture? Does he come with a message about how to be more aggressive in government? Not to say that we as Christians aren't salt and light in the community. And that we ought not to run for office if the Lord leads. But what is the mission of the church? What is the the call? It is to believe and to defend and to clarify the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that this gospel is that which is, is exercised by the church, proclaimed by the church to make mature disciples. Because if we lose the gospel in the life of the church, we lose everything as soon as we negotiate or give up the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, as soon as the gospel becomes boring to us, by the way, the gospel is never boring, and if it becomes boring, it's not because the gospel is boring, it's because we have a heart problem, amen? Always, it's always that. But it's the gospel that is the foundation of the church. That's why Paul, in the opening of his epistle to the Romans, in chapter 1, verse 1, introduces himself as a bond servant or a slave of Christ Jesus. And one who is, now listen, set apart for the gospel of God. What a description of his calling. Hi, I'm Paul. I'm a slave of Christ, and I'm set apart for the gospel of God. Paul the Apostle was set apart for the gospel of God. But what does that mean exactly? What does it mean to be set apart for the gospel? What does it mean for a church to be set apart for the gospel under the apostolic witness? Well, it means that Paul was set apart by God to unashamedly proclaim the gospel, to carefully explain the gospel, to courageously defend the gospel, and to tirelessly clarify the gospel, to proclaim it, explain it, defend it, and clarify it. That's the book of Romans, isn't it? And for what purpose? For what purpose? Well, for the glory of Christ and the the making of disciples the world over, including that great and formidable city of Rome, the very heart of the the mighty Roman Empire. Think about what these, these Christians in Rome and these fledgling small churches would have seen around them. The most powerful army in the world. The greatest architecture in the world. All of the elites, the great philosophers, the great pagan religions and temples, the idols. It was all around them. Paul could say in his letter to the Corinthians, which is very much wrapped up in his letter to the Romans as well, Greeks seek wisdom and Jews seek signs, but we preach Christ and him crucified, a stumbling block and an offense So the answer that Paul had to all of the the sin and the, the wickedness in the first century was not some social justice plan. Not some plan to fix the world, but a plan to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, which brings salvation to sinners and those who would then go out as salt and light in their callings and witness to this gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul states in the opening verses of this epistle, specifically in verses one, chapter 1, verse 5, that he and the other apostles, quote, received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be holy. Paul and his apostles were called to be ambassadors. Ambassadors. Delivering... God's astonishing news that salvation has come through Jesus Christ. This uh, news, this news when believed and embraced by faith, changes everything. It, It brings the sinner out of this enslaving and destructive realm of sin and death brought by Adam. And into the realm of freedom through grace, righteousness, and life brought by Jesus Christ. So, Paul was not ashamed of the gospel. Paul was not ashamed of the gospel. Why is that? Because the gospel is the operative power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. Please get this. Please get this. Whether you are on a college campus or you are in the workplace, or you are in your home raising children, please get this. The gospel is the operative power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. What does this mean? It means that when the gospel is preached and taught and explained and defended and clarified, then God's saving power is unleashed and applied by the Holy Spirit. And what happens when God's saving power is unleashed and applied by the Holy Spirit? Sinners are saved. Sinners are gathered into the church. Sinners are sanctified by the work of the Spirit and the means of grace. And one day they will be glorified. This is what God does through the gospel. And no words of ours and no action plan of ours can ever bring this about. This solely comes through the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the power of God unto salvation for those who believe. Amen? That is huge. And we do not understand Romans unless we understand that. Romans 1.16, again, says that the gospel is, look at Romans 1.16 with me, it is the power of God. What is the power of God? The gospel. What is the gospel? The power of God unto salvation. It's why Paul said, we preach the word of the cross, even though the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who believe it is the what? The power of God. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 18 and following. The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who believe it is the power of God. It is the power of God unto salvation, Paul writes, for in it, the gospel, the saving righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written, the righteous or just shall live by faith. Aren't you glad that the Apostle Paul didn't spend all his time in the book of Romans telling you stories about his new puppy? Or his Family vacation. Or all of his troubles. There is so much therapy and storytelling, self-therapy going on in pulpits today. And what God's people need in the church is not the pastor and his words. They need Christ and his word. More than anything else in the world, what we need is the gospel because it is is the power of God unto salvation, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed to us. What righteousness, Pastor? Glad you asked. The righteousness of God revealed in Christ Jesus, who is our righteousness, who is our sanctification, and who is our our redemption. This is why Paul, dear ones, is laboring so ardently and so diligently in the book of Romans to explain to us and to clarify to us the true nature of the gospel. If the church doesn't get the gospel, if we don't understand the gospel and embrace it by faith, what God has done for us in his son, then we will naturally trust in something else for our salvation and for our comfort. And if we do that, then we are still in our sins. This is why Paul labors a way to clarify the gospel, yes, in somewhat technical terms, in Romans chapter 5, verses 12-21. through 21. Perhaps if you're unfamiliar with this section, you've never really studied this section too much, I'm reading that uh, prior to my sermon, you're going, I am just so lost. Like, Pastor, you lost me like five verses ago. What's going on here? Now, if you felt that way, listen, join the club when you first sort of get familiar with this section. Not easy. But remember, this letter was not written to theologians. It was written to ordinary Christians in Rome. And it's meant for us to be taught and to be preached because he wants his people to be confident and assured that what Christ has done has truly has really reversed the curse introduced by sin introduced by the sin of that one man Adam and so he labors to clarify the gospel to make plain and clear the doctrine of justification an essential and foundational doctrine that he has been unpacking since chapter 3 and verse 21. There is nothing more important than we need to understand today, dear Christian, than the gospel of Jesus Christ. For if we believe this gospel and know this gospel and defend this gospel and share this gospel with others, and this gospel, it will sanctify us, it will make us more like Christ as we grow in this gospel, this gospel of grace and salvation in Christ alone We will be changed by it, and it will compel us to live the Christian life and to be salt and light no matter what may come. Why did Jan Hus in the year 1415 sing psalms as he was being burned at the stake at the Council of Constance? Because he believed the gospel. Why did Luther 100 years later go before uh, the council at Worms and declare That I believe this gospel, and here I stand, and I can do no other. And and putting his very life on the line, why did he do that? Because he believed the gospel. He loved the gospel. And so Paul continues to unpack this. And we've been in this section now for several weeks, and so we've covered a lot of the themes running throughout this. But I want to talk this morning and bring out, uh, talk about and bring out this, this clarity, this gospel clarity that comes through contrast. Through this free gift language, through this grace abounding language, this superlative language, and then finally looking at a gospel focus for the Christian life. So, so here are your points if you are taking notes. The gospel clarified through contrast. The gospel clarified as a free gift. The gospel clarified as grace abounding. And then the gospel focus of the Christian life. First of all, the gospel clarified through Contrast. Beloved, over the past couple of weeks, we've learned that Adam, the first man, was not representing only himself in the Garden of Eden. He was representing all of humanity. Indeed, God entered into a covenant relationship with humanity through the one man, Adam, which God has the right to do. Because he is the sovereign God. And he entered into a covenant relationship with Adam and all of us in him. And he told Adam, whom he created in his own image and with original righteousness, that he has all that he needs that he may eat of any tree of the garden, but he may not eat of this one tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat of that tree, God told Adam, you will surely die. And not just you, but all of your posterity. Now, if you obey... And during this mysterious probationary period, you obey me. Then you and your posterity will live forever in the garden paradise. But If you disobey, the wages of sin is what? Is death. And we know what happens. Adam did the unthinkable. He ate the forbidden fruit. to you a know, Pastor, I thought, I thought Eve ate first. Well, she did. But Adam was the federal head, and he stood by while she ate the forbidden fruit and then partook of it himself. One of the first great sins committed in the world is a man not leading his wife. One of the big problems we have today, men not being men. Not this machismo sort of uh, g- guns and... Um, don't, I'm not against guns. I am from Northern California, but I'm not against guns. But there's this idea that if I just get a gun rack and raise my voice a little bit, then I'm a man. But that's not true Christian manhood. Manhood. True Christian manhood is leading with love and servant heartedness and kindness and graciousness and strength and humility and leading as the spiritual head of your home. We see Adam failing miserably in this, standing by while Satan is lying to his wife and he says nothing and then believes the lie himself and partakes of the forbidden fruit. Again, so many of these things in, in the fall, in Genesis 3, we see just recounted over and over and over again, relived ad infinitum in the history of the world. But Adam believed Satan's lie and thus rebelled against God. And when he did, it was through that wicked act, that humanity, Was thrust into the realm of sin and death east of Eden. We've been living there ever since, east of Eden. And a long winter of sin and death began. It's like Chronicles of Narnia, right? It's been winter for long ages. All of this was brought on by Adam's sin, and it affects us all because when Adam, our federal head, sinned, we too sinned in him, and in him, in Adam, we are brought into the realm of sin and death. So here we are, here we are. We are naturally born into this world, into the realm of sin and death, in bondage to sin in bondage to our own sinful flesh and in bondage to the world and in bondage to Satan. We are in bondage and we stand before God condemned and under his judgment. That is where we stand in Adam, in the tree of Adam, that tree that is dead in transgressions and sins. And we are a branch in that tree and we are putrefying and we stand before God with our mouths shut, with the law condemning us, whatever we do, whatever we say, whatever we've tried to do to please God, it never measures up to God's standard, and we stand before him condemned in Adam, in the realm or sphere of sin and death. Isn't this what Paul has been saying over and over and over again in verses 12 through 21? In fact, five times he makes reference to this in these, in these verses. If you were an English professor and someone wrote like this and repeated themselves this many times, you'd say, let's maybe repeat yourself once, maybe twice, but not five times. It's a bit repetitive. But this is God's divinely inspired word to the Apostle Paul. God is trying to get our attention here, dear one. And look what he says. Look down at your text. Verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, a historical Adam, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. When Adam sinned, we sinned because we are united to Adam as our federal head. Verse 15. Many died. Through one man's trespass. The wages of sin is death. Adam sinned, we sinned in him, and so we died in Adam. Past week, three different family members in Marla's extended family died. Three. It's like you couldn't, just can't believe it. That's the world in which we live. Death is real. And it's there because of sin. It's there because Adam sinned, and we sinned in him. And we do not die because we sin. We die because we sinned in Adam, and we have this disease. The proof of this is the death of John Murray talked about the death of children, of infants. Infants do not die because they break the law. Infants die because they are an Adam. And the wages of sin is what? Is death. And it's terrible. It's why our Lord wept at the tomb of Lazarus. Death is awful. Verse 12, verse 15, verse 17. He goes on, Because of one man's trespass, Death reigned through that one man. And in case you didn't get it the first three times, verse 18, one trespass led to condemnation for all men. And then verse 19, by the one man's disobedience, the many were made or rendered sinners. So why is Paul highlighting this point about Adam with such force and repetition? Why does it bear repeating this point over and over and over again from these slightly different angles? Why does he return to this theme in First Corinthians 15 of the first Adam and the second Adam? It's to clarify the gospel, dear ones. It's to clarify the gospel, to assure the Roman believers and us and all Christians throughout the centuries that while Adam's One sin has constituted us sinners through his federal headship. The righteousness of a second federal head, namely Jesus Christ, constitutes or renders or reckons us righteous through faith. May I say that again? Paul here is clarifying the gospel to us to assure the Roman believers and us that while Adam's one sin constituted us or rendered us or reckoned us as sinners through his federal headship, his representation of us, the righteousness of a second federal head, namely Jesus Christ, a second Adam, constitutes or renders or reckons us righteous through faith. Dear ones, to not understand Adam's federal headship over all of humanity is not truly to understand the gospel. Because the gospel is the good news that a second Adam has come to reverse the curse of the first Adam. Again, just as Adam's sin was done on behalf of all humanity, so Christ's righteousness and obedience was done on behalf of all who by sovereign grace would put their faith in him. You say, oh, pastor, how could a man's sin from so long ago be that which is reckoned to me? That's not fair. You see, if you go there, if you go to that place, then you can say this. Well, how can righteousness that has been done for me 2,000 years ago in Christ, be reckoned to me. That's not fair. And then all you see is destruction and death around you. And you say, what hope is there? Oh, there is great hope in the gospel because the gospel is true. And it is true that sin came into the world through one man. And it is true that we sinned in him. And it is true that death reigns in unrighteousness and sin in this life. And it's also true, praise God, that he sent his son into the world to do that which Adam failed to do, to overcome sin and temptation, to overcome the devil when the devil tempted him in the wilderness and the devil fled, unlike in the garden, when the devil was successful. The devil fled from Christ and Christ overcame that temptation for you and for me so that his obedience would be rendered or reckoned to us by grace through faith. Paul clarifies the true nature of the gospel, the root and grounds of our justification by setting forth, please hear this, the contrast between the failure of the first Adam and the triumph and obedience of the second Adam. In Adam, we all die, but in Christ, we are made alive. United to the first Adam, we are sinners and we dwell in the sphere or realm of sin and death. But united to the second Adam through faith, we are set free from the realm of sin and death. We are brought out of the realm of sin and death and are no longer under its power or its condemnation. Amen. That is the good news. We were here when we were outside of Christ Condemned by God, rightly and justly condemned because we fall short of his glory. We've disobeyed his law. We are in Adam. We, have, we, have, uh, uh, we are in him and, and we have sinned in him. And so we stand before God, condemned, rightly so. But then by God's grace, he has brought us into union with Christ by the power of his Holy Spirit in the preaching of the gospel. And now we stand here before God Justified, justified, and it's not that God uh, lessens his his standard. It's not like he 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 starts grading on a curve. I remember the first time I received papers as a professor, essays, and uh, and I, I called uh, a, a, a another professor in the seminary, and I said I just got my first round of essays, and he said, Oh, John. I'm so sorry. I said, how do you grade these things? They're all awful. He said, well, he said, uh, I grade the good ones. Uh, I, no, he said, he said, I give uh, them three piles. Um, horrible, uh, absolutely terrible, and a disgrace. Uh, I give the horrible ones a B+. Plus. I give the terrible ones A C, and I give the disgraceful ones a D minus. God doesn't grade us like that. His standard is always perfection because He is perfection. And the expression of his law is an expression of his perfection. And he gave us his law in order to increase sin, to show us and powerfully to demonstrate to us our imperfection. What does the average person say when you ask them, why should God let you into heaven? They say something like this. Well, I've done a pretty good job. I'm not like that scumbag in my class. I'm not like this person. You know, the person in jail who's only murdered one person says, well, I haven't murdered 10 people like that guy. We compare ourselves to others. We, we do this, and we try to make ourselves acceptable to others and ultimately to God. But God doesn't judge on a curve. We're all leveled. We're all leveled. You see, this gospel, that it teaches us that we are all sinners, that we are all on level ground. No one is better than another. It's this gospel which eradicates racism, amen? Because it is reinforcing that we are all sinners. Whether you are a, a king or whether you are a peasant, you are a sinner and you need God's grace. Whether you are rich or poor, no matter what ethnic background you are from, we all have the same basic essential need, and that is for Christ. For his redemption. And when we know that Christ together. We are under him. He is our head. And we are his body. And we love one another. At least we should. That's the calling upon us. But in Christ. We are declared. Righteous. Not because of anything we have done. But because of what Christ has done for us. On the cross at Calvary. He went all the way to the cross for you. And for me. And as a perfect law keeper who kept God's law and fully satisfied God's law and every requirement of it for 33 years went to the cross and he was crucified. So as a perfect law keeper, he became our righteous substitute, our sinless law keeping substitute, and he bore our sins. But not only that, he bore the wrath of God in our stead say, well, how does God render his justice then if we're forgiven? He rendered his justice upon Christ. God's wrath and judgment and hell was poured out on Christ. It's why he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Every sin that we have committed in our lives was placed upon Christ, on Calvary. And so... He died, and he paid the wages of sin. The wages of sin is death. We are in Adam, and in Adam we all die. And we sin because we are sinners, and Christ came to save sinners. He gave his life while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. Every sinful thought, every evil deed, every thing that you should have done that you didn't do, every word that you should have said that you didn't say, Christ died for those sins. And not only that, he did everything perfectly that you and I failed to do. We receive Christ's forgiveness and Christ's righteousness imputed to us, and so we stand before God now justified. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So we are brought out of the realm of sin and death, and we are brought into the realm of grace. So we are no longer under law, that is, under the condemnation of the law, but now we are under grace. And now our relationship to the law is different. The law no longer crushes us. It's no longer this huge burden. Now we are in Christ with thankful hearts, and we want to obey the law out of a heart of thanksgiving, not a heart of trying to earn God's love, which we know deep down we can never do, but out of a heart of love and thanksgiving. In Christ, our status has changed. United to Christ, we are no longer rendered condemned sinners, but we are rendered just sons and daughters. In Christ, our status has changed. Here's the point of contrast. Just as the sin of Adam committed so long ago rendered or reckoned us sinners and enemies of God, though we had done nothing to place us in that status. This is the point. Though we had done nothing to place us in that status of being rendered or reckoned sinners and enemies of God, so the righteousness of another man The one who was to come renders or reckons us as righteous and children of God through nothing that we have done. This truth, by way of contrast, clarifies the free gospel of grace. We are justified not by works of the law, not by our own good works, but solely through the saving blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ. What he did, he did on your behalf as your federal head. If you don't get that and you think that your salvation is all about walking down an aisle and praying a prayer or living in a certain way or being a member of a certain church or or being part of a certain club or having a certain set of parents or or having a denominational name before uh, your church, then you are trusting in that which will ultimately be your undoing. Only in Christ that we are reckoned righteous in God's sight. Look with me at verses 18 and 19. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were, it says, made there in your ESV, but that that word really. Uh, means rendered or reckoned. For by the one man's disobedience, the many were made or rendered or reckoned sinners. So by the one man's obedience, namely Jesus Christ, the many will be made or rendered or reckoned righteous. Of course, this parallel is not teaching universalism. Liberal theologians have gone to this text and ignored thousands of others and said, well, this means universalism. That as all were died in Adam, all are made alive in Christ. Look at the way the language is used there. No, thousand times no. Paul has made clear over and over again that salvation is received by grace through what? Faith. Faith in Christ. Faith is the instrument by which sinners receive and rest upon Christ as Savior. Without faith in Christ, we are still in Adam. Chapter 3, verse 25, Paul makes clear that Christ is to be received by faith. So Paul clarifies the gospel through contrasting Adam and Christ. And Adam was a type of the one to come, it says in verse 14, because he was a federal head. Jesus was a federal head like Adam. But unlike Adam, Christ did not fail. Unlike Adam and unlike we who were born in Adam, he did not sin. He never sinned. Again, verse 19. Disobedience is the way Adam is characterized and obedience is what we see related to Christ. And this brings us to our second heading. The gospel clarified as a free gift. The gospel clarified as a free gift. March and April are busy birthday months in the Payne household. Lots of Birthdays. Uh, Mary, Hannah, and I have March birthdays, and Marla's uh, birthday was yesterday, actually. And of course, when someone has a birthday, they receive gifts. Everybody wants birthday gifts. They don't earn those gifts. I don't know of any parents that say, you want your birthday gifts? Well, then you need to go out and mow the lawn. You want your birthday gifts? Take out the garbage at least ten times, and then you'll get your birthday gifts. Now, we might say that, some might say that, but even if that child only takes the garbage out eight times rather than ten, you're probably going to give the child the birthday gifts. But gifts are that which we receive, we don't earn them, we do not work for them. Birthday gifts are received, and those who receive them are grateful for them. Paul clarifies the gospel in Romans 5 12 through 21 by referring to salvation in Christ. As a free gift. Please get this. Salvation is not a cooperative effort. God is not our co-pilot. Christ didn't do his part so that we can do ours. No, our federal head, the second Adam, our Lord Jesus Christ, the fulfiller of the covenant of grace, he has done it all. He shed his blood on Calvary and his perfect righteousness, are. The sole grounds of our right standing with God. We are justified by faith in Christ, not through our good works, not even one. And dear ones, here's the thing. No less than five times does the apostle mention the free gift of grace and righteousness in contrast to Adam's transgression. Transgression. Look with me at verse 15. But the free gift is not like the trespass. The free gift is not like the trespass. And then it goes on. For if many died through the one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the what? Free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for the many. And then in verse 16. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the what? Free gift following many trespasses brought Justification, then in verse 17. Notice down in verse 17 it says, For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Are you telling me, O God, that this salvation, eternity in heaven with all the saints and the angels and in the presence of God, is a free gift? I can do nothing to earn it. Yes, that is what he is saying. Salvation is a free gift. Salvation is a free gift, and it's a free gift of righteousness. Verse 17. The righteousness of Jesus Christ. To be forgiven of all of your sins is one thing. So let's say you have a robe that's tattered, it has holes in it. It's dirty. And those are the robes of your sin and your self-righteousness and your attempts at obeying the law. And you've got this robe on. It's in tatters. But then Christ dies for you and He dies for your sin and your sins are nailed to the cross and you bear them no more. But you still stand before God without righteousness. Right? Your sins have been forgiven. But now what? Well... Here's the good news. And this is the news that's proclaimed in chapter 1 and verse 17. For in the gospel, the righteousness is of God is revealed from faith for faith. What is this righteousness that is revealed? It's the righteousness of Jesus Christ given to us as a gift and received by faith. This is the gift. The free gift that is given to us in Christ. It's interesting when you read verse 15, it says, But the free gift is not like the trespass. One sin brought us all of humanity into the realm of sin and death. But God, through the abundance of his grace, forgives how many sins? Is there even a number? His grace is so abundant that while one sin, that one trespass, brought all men into condemnation, so the lavishness and abundance of God's grace has forgiven the many sins. The, the one sin was a, a careless and a selfish act, and yet the free gift is an act of submission on the part of Christ to fulfill his Father's will and to save us from our sins. Romans 5:17. For if because of one man's trespass death reigned through the one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man Jesus Christ. We read it earlier, didn't we? In the assurance of pardon for our sake. This is 2 Corinthians 5:21. For our sake, He that is God the Father made Him, namely God the Son, who knew no sin. God the Son knew no sin. But he made him to be sin, to be reckoned as a sinner on the cross, so that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God in him. There is the gospel, dear ones. Gospel clarified as a free gift of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Thirdly, and briefly, the gospel clarified as grace abounding, Paul clarifies the gospel by underscoring its lavishness, its abundance. He employs superlatives so that we would get a sense of the glory and the majesty and the abundance of this grace. Have you ever received a gift that was just really big? You, you just kind of felt bad for taking it? Oh, I can't. I can't. It's too much, you say. It's too much. And they say, no, please take it. We love you. We want you to have it. I remember getting a phone call from my in-laws uh, three or four years ago. We had been borrowing their very nice and very expensive SUV. And they had bought it the year before. And we were borrowing it because our car had broken down. And, and we get a phone call and, and uh, uh, Marla said, hey, mom and dad want to talk to us. I'm like, okay, what's this all about? And they said, hey, um, you're borrowing the car we want to sell it to you for $1. I said, that's too much. Can't do it. <laughs> My first thought was, that's too much. That's too much. You just got this car. I said, well, we want, we want to get another one. We were, going to get, we're going to get a new one, so we're going, to just, we're going to do this. We want to get this for you guys. You guys need this. It, was a, it wasn't like giving us the, the clunker that barely worked. It was a, an expression of an abundance of, of love and generosity. It was too much. It's too much. No, take it. We love you. This is what the gospel is, dear ones. It is an abundance of grace. Who of us would have ever come up with this story? If God the Father were to come to us and, and say, I just... Let's just say for the sake of argument, God is like one of the Greek gods. He doesn't know everything. And he says, you know, I just don't know how, how, how it can be done. You know, you're, you, you've, you've done this, and you're, you're all sinners, and it's and, and chaos, and I, and I must bring judgment against you. I just don't know of a way to save you. And you say something like this, I have an idea. I have an idea, Father. How about you give your son? How about you give the son of your love? To be crucified on the cross for sinners to spit on him and whip him and and to put a crown of thorns on him. That's that's what you should do to save us who are your enemies. Which one of us would have had the audacity to say that to God? I suspect no one. We wouldn't even be smart enough to come up with that plan. Much less to have the audacity to, to say to God, Give your son for me. But this is what God has done. It is an abundance, a superabundance, of grace, and he says it over and over. Look at verse 15. "For if many died through the one man's trespass, much more, have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, what? Abounded for the many." Verse 17. For if, because of the one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the, what? Abundance of grace. Verse 20. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Dear ones, sin is great, but grace is greater. Adam's sin and our sinning in him is colossally destructive, but the gift of Christ's righteousness and our standing in him is lavish and saving. Adam's sin leads to condemnation and death. Christ's obedience leads to justification and life. Ephesians 1, 7 and 8, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the what? The riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Paul is grasping for words to demonstrate by God's Spirit the lavishness and superabundance of the grace of God in Christ Jesus. Dear sinner, what are you going through right now? What sin has caught you like a net? What has grabbed your attention is drawing your affections away from God. This morning, remember this. Sin is great, but grace is greater. Turn from your sin. Throw yourself into the mighty arms of Jesus. He is a saving Savior. He saves sinners. That's why He came. Trust in Him. By His grace, put your hope and your faith in Him and in His righteousness alone for your salvation. And this is the focus of the Christian life. We never go on to other things. Ah, oh, pastor, I've heard that gospel several times. Let's go on to, to more mature things. It'll help me to become a stronger, more mature Christian. This gospel is preached every Lord's Day because it is where we become mature Christians. Too often the gospel gets undermined by other things. It gets replaced by social action and cultural warfare and worldliness and expressive individualism, etc., etc. But we must stand firm in the grace of God in this church. This is the gospel of God that Paul was set apart for. To proclaim it, to teach it, to defend it, to clarify it for the church. Why? For the glory of Christ in the nations. Starting right here in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina. Starting right here at Christ Church. Starting right here with the means of grace, the word, sacraments, and prayer. Dear ones, may we glory... In this gospel this morning and believe it, and not look for other things to be our saviors or our comfort, but may we look to Christ. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ. He alone is our salvation, and we glory and boast in nothing else but Christ and Him crucified and risen. We boast in nothing else but the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ. And Lord, it is there in our boasting in Christ, in our clinging to him, even as he clings to us and will never let us go. It is there, Lord, that we find our hope in the midst of our trials, our joy in the midst of our suffering. It is there that we are able to carry on in the midst of this broken and corrupt and thorn-infested world as we make our way as pilgrims and the strength and power of the Holy Spirit and through the means of grace on our way to the promised land. We thank you, Lord, that through these means, eternity is breaking into time and you are empowering your people to walk by faith